Hello, hi. Hi, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. Thanks for the invite. Okay. Welcome to the PIDE webinar. We are going to begin now. Dr. Ayona Datta is here. We're going to um, take up uh, one of our themes that we've been taking up for a while, um, cities. We've done themes on education. We've done themes on um, civil service. We've done themes on trade, on energy. So cities is another one of our themes that we pick up from now time to time. And here we've got today a very good speaker, Dr. Ayona Datta, Professor of Geography at the University College London. She's going to talk about smart cities. She's written a book on smart cities. She knows about smart cities. So the question is, what is so smart about cities? And I would like to add, Professor Datta, that you have to talk about smart cities where the people are not so smart. So can we make smart cities when the people, especially the people of the subcontinent are extremely unsmart? We continue to fight, we continue to be religious, we continue to be extremists, we continue to be, well, I don't think I'll go on, otherwise I'll keep you up all night listening to this. So with that, Professor Datta, let me invite you. Uh, if you can you know, talk for about 15, 20 minutes, whatever, then we can take it up uh, in a conversation. Thank you, Dr. Datta. Over to you. The floor is yours. Thank you. Thanks so much for inviting me to this uh, webinar. I'm, I'm really honored, actually, to be uh, given this opportunity to talk to colleagues um, in, in Pakistan. And this is, I must say, it's a first for me, but it's also the one of the silver lining on the clouds of COVID that we can actually have these webinars, even though I uh, haven't ever been able to visit Pakistan. So this is this is really exciting and um, it, it gives me great honor to be here. As I said, I was going to talk about what is smart about smart cities and certainly people have always been my focus in my research. So let me share my screen and then I can talk you through this. Okay. So can you see my screen now? Yes, we can. <clears throat> okay, so um, I'm going to talk about what is smart about smart cities. Um, and it's based on research that I've been doing for some time now, uh, looking at smart cities, not necessarily from the top down perspective, but mainly to look at it in terms of what, what makes smart cities from below. So, in that spirit, what I want to do today is for the first half of my seminar, start unpacking some of the, the accepted truths of what a smart city is like, particularly uh, what it means to be a smart city when you try seeing some of the government perspectives on this, the state ideas of what is an ideal smart city. And then the second half of my lecture, we will uh, look at some of the initiatives and some of the different ways that we can uh, reconceptualize. Oh, sorry. Um, some of the ways that we can reconceptualize the smart city from below. So uh, I want to start with this image, uh, and I'm sure many of you have seen this image. This is supposed to be the image of the iconic smart city, uh, the first smart city command and control center in Rio. Uh, and this image has been circulated a lot and, and talked about a lot, so I won't repeat the 
the same old critiques of this kind of panoptics of surveillance and seeing the city from above in a way that we don't really understand what's going on in the everyday life of the city. But this provides us with a springboard to really engage with uh, some of the weaknesses or some of the challenges of looking at city in this kind of visualization where we, we're basically engaging with the city and urban life through our computer screens. Um, and, and don't we know it now with COVID, uh, this is what we've been doing for the past few months uh, as well. But what does the city look like from below is something that the smart city so far in kind of most of the global initiatives have not been able to capture. So just before uh, launching into some of the criticisms about the smart city, um, I just want to put this kind of accepted definition of the smart city um, that's been provided and that's been circulated many times by uh, the global international global IT corporations like um, IBM, Cisco, uh, and, and many others. These are corporations that are selling smart technologies to different countries across the world. And particularly global South countries have been um, often seduced by these smart technologies. So with these uh, smart city technologies comes this notion that smart city would actually integrate all the technologies with uh, what they call a strategic approach to sustainability, cost reduction, citizen being, um, a citizen well-being, and economic development. Uh, and, and you see here this image of uh, connecting everything, this kind of ubiquitous connectivity between utilities, supply chains, vehicles, homes, metering, et cetera, et cetera. So the idea that all of this can be connected and somehow we would be able to uh, visualize and analyze and actually predict what happens in the future is basically inherently that essence of the smart city from above and, and the, the, the idea of the smart city that's been sold to countries across the world. So what is a smart city? And I'm going to draw uh, upon um, academic literature, academic definitions that's been given over a period of time about what can constitute the smart city. And one of the first few academics who began critiques of the smart city was Robert Hollins, who talked about smart city um, as the use of technology, but technology also being conceived in four different ways, uh, where first we are thinking about the application of technology to a wide range of urban systems. And this is obviously one of the most common ones we see with all sorts of smart infrastructure, smart transport, smart water metering, and so on and so forth. But he also talks about technology in a smart city being embedded, embedding of ICT in the city. Um, as well as the radical transformation of urban life through technology. And do we not know it again uh, during COVID where our lives have been so much now reliant upon the use of, uh, um, use of technologies. And then the other thing that he talks about is that smart technologies have also been used to bring city regions together to enhance innovation and smart growth. That the idea is that not just people and systems within cities, but also cities can now also be connected by these smart technologies. So it's, it's really kind of uh, scaling up the idea of the ubiquitous technology. Now, in 2009, Dirks and Keelian gave another uh, definition of the smart city which said it's one that deploys technology to transform core systems, people, business, transport, communication, water, and energy, and optimize returns for finite resources. So there's the optimization and transformation idea behind the smart city as well. And then Anthony Townsend, whose work has been very well known 
is uh, giving us another slightly different perspective of the smart city, that these are places where information technology is combined with infrastructure, architecture, everyday objects, and our own bodies to address social, economic, and environmental problems. So these are various kinds of uh, definitions that's been given, and, and most smart cities kind of are a combination of these, but most smart cities, the way these are understood, are uh, really about the use of technology to enhance, optimize, uh, manage, and actually conduct predictive analytics to think about what might happen in the future in order to make policy and intervene in the present. So <clears throat> I just want to also make an argument and note that these are not new. These ideas are not new. There is a strong and a very long genealogy of the smart cities that has led us to this point and going forward from this point. And it's not suddenly that's come out in the vacuum. And we, we, you know, we're, we're used to talking about the digital revolution and the urban age and all of that. But the, the, in, the embedding of smart technologies or technologies within cities is not something new, that this has been happening for a very, very long time, over decades. And one of the first ideas that technology has a relationship with urban form and that they shape each other came through with uh, Fafi's work uh, on the telecity, where uh, they were basically talking about communications technologies, the, the telecommunication technologies that shape urban forms. And then in um, <clears throat> 1996, uh, this should be more familiar with uh, people, Manuel Castell's work on the informational city where he talks about cities and regions that are transformed under the combined impact of a restructuring of the capitalist system and a technological revolution. So this is where he starts bringing together the idea of capitalism and how uh, the, the idea of innovation and entrepreneurship that is vested in capitalism also drives technological revolution and the city as an informational space. In 97, Dutton talked about the wired city, that he's talking about what happens when the city gets wired because of the communication systems, what kind of physical material changes do we see in the city, but also what kind of social, political, cultural changes do we see as well. And then Graham, Steve Graham and um, <clears throat> Simon Marvin's work in 2001, which is again, a very important seminal work in this, the idea of the network city, which connects places through ICT, information and communication technology. And they talk particularly about premium network spaces, which I think is very important for us to understand in this context, and particularly what I'm going to talk about in the second half of the seminar. The premium network spaces where networks and communication systems begin to get unevenly geographically distributed. So we see certain areas of the city very well covered by digital technologies, very well serviced by infrastructures and others left behind. And often these other spaces that are left behind and not serviced and not provided by digital infrastructures often happen to be places of social and spatial marginality, the slums, the informal settlements, the townships and so on and so forth. So the network city begins to start telling us about the impacts of this, what is supposed to be universal benefit is actually that it's not universally applied, that it actually sometimes creates new kinds of network spaces that are devoid of these privileges. And then in uh, 2002, Comninos talks about the intelligent city that software systems are can be used for efficiency and innovation. And this leads us to 
the other idea about the intelligent city that everything is connected to everything and that includes our bodies the idea that people are also connected to these networks and we certainly are now with us with our phone systems with our apps with with our track and trace software and all of those things so shin begins to put forward this idea that there is a city is no longer just wired or informational it's actually ubiquitous i mean we have become part of those networks our bodies and our our thoughts and our spaces and our experiences and then finally we come to the idea of the smart city and so the idea the the purpose of showing you this this timeline is to make the argument that smart cities have the strong lineage the strong genealogy uh, over a period of time through which they have been developed these ideas have developed over a period of time to lead us to this point where uh, we are thinking about everything being controlled by the smartphone uh, the idea that big data uh, and the internet of things that connects us to everything but also that big data is data that is just it just produced because of the way we use technology that it creates uh, a way of knowing the past without as, as the past and the future without necessarily collecting the data very consciously so this is data that coming that is coming to us and and the assumption is that if we provide some kind of analytics to it we can actually this data can help us predict the future and then we can we can intervene in real time so that sort of is, is the first part of my lecture is kind of setting the base for what is commonly understood as the smart city some of its genealogies and some of the ways that we begin to see uh, the kind of specialization the geographies of the smart city um, in, in a way that it somewhat overlaps also on different kinds of social cultural uh, and spatial marginalities now i want to move on to some of the work that we've been doing in uh, my research projects uh, and and the the work is particularly um i think important uh, at this point because we've been looking at ways that we can rethink the smart city but rethink it from below that uh, a city is not just about efficient management and optimized resources uh, a city is also about people and uh, we need to find a way in which these technologies that are being rolled out can be used by people, but it's not just about use, that people can actually, um, actually access the correct information, create some kind of critical consciousness, and participate in democratic systems, uh, and, and call uh, global corporations, call the nation, the cities, the, the, the state into account, make them accountable, uh, create more transparent systems. So, um, We've been working on uh, about four research projects. Some of these are completed, some are still ongoing. Uh, and these have been funded by um, uh, different uh, funders. One was Arts and Humanities Research Council and uh, the Economic and Social Research Council in the UK, but we also have funding from the Swiss National Science Foundation uh, in Switzerland. And we're basically looking at different ways to rethink the, the smart city from below. Uh, and the two areas that we are particularly focusing on are gender and sustainable communities. Um, so these are the two sustainable development goals, five gender equality and 11 sustainable cities and communities. So we are thinking about how through this work we can deliver on these at least these two SDG targets and indicators. So what is smart about smart cities? Um, so um, what exactly is smart that we think 
when we think about smart cities. If we put aside the fact that, of course, they are wired up from above and um, things are connected to each other, what can be smart? And so our uh, way of thinking is that we need to create smart cities from below if you want to use that word. I mean, I think the word itself has a problematic assumption that uh, smart is good. Um, and uh, it's not necessarily that because in some of our workshops, we also had citizens telling us that we don't really like the word smart because smart somehow gives uh, a, a kind of um, a, a way that people can uh, give a connotation to smart as clever. And we don't want people to be clever because clever people can often not do the right things. It can be often uh, selfish and Machiavellian. What we want it to be is intelligent people, people who are critically conscious, people who have knowledge of, of how the city works, but also have the, have the capacity to intervene uh, in these systems to make them more democratic and transparent. So we began to think about the smart city from below with the caveat that we perhaps even need to think, rethink, what the word smart actually means and what it does when we use it in, the con in connection to the smart city. And here I want to use a quote from Mike Batty's work. Uh, he talks about smartness, that it lies in the active and democratic participation of communities in e-governance through information technology. And I'd go further on to say this is not just in e-governance because e-governance has a framework and limitation in which you can participate in e-governance only through the portal that is provided to you by the state. Um, and that's it's uh, participating in democratic systems is not just about being able to pay your bills on time. It's about the, the role that frugal and low cost technologies can help you participate as equal citizens uh, and help you participate as critically conscious citizens calling uh, the state and, and global corporations and these technology systems into account, making them more transparent. So <clears throat> when you actually look from below, you see that most people don't have smartphones, at least in some of the areas of poverty in informal settlements. But even if they have smartphones, they don't necessarily use the smartphone or don't know how to use a smartphone in a way that the smart city asks for it to be used, in a way that the smart city expects everyone to be very knowledgeable and capable of using these very complex systems. Uh, and one of the key things in the global south uh, is, is that people often do not have literacy. Uh, it's not just digital literacy, they don't even have textual literacy. So when they are downloading software into their phones, they don't necessarily, um, they aren't necessarily able to read even the privacy uh, statements that they're signing up to. And even if they can read it, they don't necessarily understand what they're signing up to. And it can even uh, trip up people who are researchers in the, in the digital uh, technologies because the language is so complex. So that's just one example, but overall, um, we need to think about smartness through the use of very frugal and very low cost technologies, because that's the reality of the existing, everyday existing life in cities, particularly in cities where in the global south, where uh, there's a high amount of poverty and spatial inequality. So one of the arguments that we've been making is that we need to go back to real social sciences research that cities um, are, cannot just be run with big data. Uh, smart cities need deep data, that is real embeddedness within communities, real embeddedness and understanding of the complexities of everyday life in communities. And that the sustainability of these 
very highly centralized smart city technologies and infrastructures of governance is just not possible because given that in, in a global south context we are constantly dealing with scarcity of data there is and the state has not been very meticulous in collecting data keeping it storing it handling it processing it so there's a continuous challenge of data scarcity but there's also continuous challenges of, of broken or incomplete or very improvised in infrastructures in existing cities in the global south uh, so the for example, in order to put in a smart metering system, you first need to have those systems in place that on which you can retrofit the smart meters. But if you don't even have a water supply, if you don't have sanitation, if you don't have electricity, uh, it's you're automatically left out of these smart technologies because the smart technologies can only be retrofitted uh, on existing systems or you start from scratch, which means you're building new cities from scratch, which also has its uh, own uh, marginal marginalizations. So what we've been saying is that we need to collect deep data. We need to uh, not just collect, but engage with this deep data in participatory ways, uh, in co-producing this data with uh, marginalized citizens, with people who've been left out continuously, not just now, but even before, kind of they have historical, social, political, and, and cultural marginalities. Uh, and they've now been further reinforced with digital marginality. So we need to build this data from below with the participation of these citizens. Uh, and it's only then that we can aim to provide more sustainable, equitable cities in the future in which the data comes from the community and the data is contextualized within the community. So I just want to start with one example here. And uh, this is an example that I think um, uh, there are many similar examples exist around the world of, of mapping the kind of cartographic visibility and one of in one of our research in, in South Africa in, in Cape Town, we, um, we were working with this uh, Guguletu community in Lotus Park, where uh, this is basically an informal township and had no visibility in the state maps in the in the urban authority they had really no clue about how many houses were there, how many people were living in each house. So the, the project, uh, uh, it was not us, but it was a kind of community project. Uh, and we actually went in there to look at how it was working and it was working really brilliantly. So the community kind of uh, engaged, came together and they trained themselves in using this open source software called QGIS. <clears throat> and with QGIS, basically they trained some of these young mothers who, sorry, uh, who didn't really um, uh, you know, have the capacity, but they developed this to to start mapping on QGIS every little plot, every little house that was there in this informal settlement. And the idea, if you see here in the, the central image here, <clears throat> was to not just map it, but create property boundaries, give them numbers and addresses. And then on the right-hand side, if you see here, uh, produce these proof of address certificates. So what that means is once you have this proof of address certificate, then you can actually say, well, I have proof that I've been resident here for a very long time. And alongside this is a, a continuing anti-eviction campaign that's going on in the township. So when you see that there is a threat of eviction, uh, and then this whole community comes together and, and there's, it, it's still going on that they, they're con constantly updating this database and adding more and more properties, more and more people and counting and making sure that there is a, there's a clear outline of, 
of, of, of accountability of how many people are there, what kind of houses they occupy, and giving each family, each household, a proof of address is there. So that sort of generates immediately resistances to eviction, and it gives them evidence to campaign for anti-eviction. So this is just one of the examples that we've come across in our work. But I want to focus now a bit more on uh, what the what the digital technologies have done. And I think starting from the, from the moment that um, uh, Professor Nadim asked me to talk about people, I think digital technologies are all about people because what is a technology if it's not used by, by people? Uh, and we really need to understand how people use technology rather than asking them to use technology and then saying, well, they're not smart because they don't know how to use it. Uh, because there is such a big variety of ways to use technology and, and it's particularly complicated when technology maps across social differences. And, and one of the ways that we've been examining this is through the gender angle, gender and social class. We've been looking at poor urban women uh, living in the peripheries of the city or living in informal settlements and how they use technology and what kind of barriers they might find themselves um, in when they need, and when they want to, they're desirous of and they aspire to participate equally in the city and they're continuously being left out by the systems and structures of digital infrastructure. So one of the concepts that uh, we've been coming across is the gender digital divide, that the digital divide in which men and women are never, have never been uh, equal participants or equal users of technology, uh, but they also, <clears throat> it's a gendered digital divide in the way that uh, it's not just women don't have enough, as many phones as men do, but it's also how women use these phones is very important. And if you see some of the numbers, 29% of internet users in India are females. The vast majority of internet users are male. So even if you have a mobile phone which connects to the internet, <clears throat> it's still more likely that it's going to be a man. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and then also there is an ownership issue that there's 70% of mobile phones are owned approximately by, by men. But there is a complexity about ownership, which I'll talk to in a minute. But I, I think we need to kind of think about this aspect of the gendering of technology, that this digital divide is also gendered, but this digital divide is also class-based. It also maps across uh, other kinds of marginality that is kind of religious marginalities, caste, uh, class and so on and so forth. So <laughs> we've been, um, you know, some of the work that uh, we've, we've done in these communities uh, leads us to think about a much more complex picture of ownership. Um, and this is something that is there in the SDG, the Sustainable Development Goals. One of the targets and the indicators in, in gender equality is to count the number of women who own the mobile phone and and of course a very basic thumb rule is that the more women own mobile phone um, the the more equitable the digital uh, the, the the lesser the digital divide is um, and what we found in, in much of our you know conversations with the communities is that there is an ownership issue but there's also possession because women might not actually own the mobile phone but they have possession of it especially when they're leaving the home so they might borrow their father's or their brother's or their husband's phone. Uh, and that's the only way that the family can keep in touch with them. So there is this kind of shadow uh, numbers of, of women who still use the phone, although they might formally not be owning the phone. <clears throat> and we've been looking at these few indicators 
uh, indicator 4.4.1, which just says the proportion of youth and adults with information and communication technology skills. Now, again, the, the young people in the slums and informal settlements are very technologically savvy. I mean, they're, they're more technologically savvy than many middle-class older men and women, but they are not able to have the skills to even sometimes access welfare programs on the internet. And given everything is on the internet now, it's very difficult for them to access uh, these welfare programs, but even more so, they're more <clears throat> vulnerable to misinformation, false information, fake news, because they just don't know where else to go and validate the information they get. So there is a lack of, there isn't a lack of information, but there's a lack of knowledge. There's a lack of critical consciousness uh, and the, the ability to distinguish between uh, real news, real information and, and fake information. Um, so there are all these indicators I think we need to question um, the proportion of individuals who own a mobile phone, proportion of population that's covered by a mobile, a mobile network by technology. So that's a kind of structural problem because many of the peripheries uh, of, urban of urban areas or cities um, have less digital network connectivity. And even if you have a mobile phone, it doesn't mean that you're able to get onto the internet because the, the network just isn't there. And then, of course, looking at the proportion of individuals using the Internet and it has various impacts, knock on impacts like on education. And we know this now with COVID, uh, most of the children in slums and squatter settlements have not been able to get any education because they don't have teams or they don't have Zoom. <clears throat> and so they're left out of education, whereas, you know, you have middle class children who can sit at home and still be educated via Zoom. So it's a very, very complex picture when we look at the grassroots, when we start looking at the smart city from below. And so one of the things that we began to work with when, when we were working, this was a project in Kerala in India. Um, we found out that most of these women are actually using feature phones. So this was one of our research assistants who was sitting with these women and she was trying to explain uh, how to use one of the apps. And this woman says, I, I just can't use it because I have a feature phone. And that's because it's very cheap. She doesn't have the money to pay for a smartphone, but also because she's not digitally uh, literate enough to be able to use this. So what we did is we came out with uh, one of the toolkits that was trying to create a gender inclusive technology. And there were the three things that we identified. One was the aspect of the device. So like the example I gave, you probably don't have a smartphone and you're only using a feature phone, a basic feature phone. So it has an impact on the kinds of softwares you might be able to download, the kind of hardwares that the phone has capacity of, whether it has GPS even or not. Then there is the network angle. And then many of these people, as I said, if they're in the peripheries, they might not have access to the telecoms and digital connectivity. But there's also the user angle. And we did a quite a bit of training sessions with these women in order to help them even access these, these welfare sessions, uh, these welfare websites um, and claim widow pensions and claim you know, job security allowance and things like that. So the toolkit actually helped us uh, provide uh, a kind of guidelines to uh, uh, the software engineers or the, you know, the, the data engineers in terms of how the, the interface perhaps for a mobile phone should look like. What should it say if, if a person is, is, does not have textual literacy? Should we do more icons? Should, should these the mobile phone interfaces, should they have more icons? Should they have more uh, different kinds of colors? Because a smartphone can accommodate many number of colors, but if you see a feature phone, the color 
uh, range is very limited. Uh, and so again, uh, do, how do we use these kind of design features within phones in order to enable people to participate equally in using technology, even when they are left out through particular kind of structural or infrastructural reasons. So this was one of the ways that we were thinking about kind of hacking into um, the, the problems of this kind of ubiquitous way that the smart city has been rolled out without really necessarily considering people, people's usage of uh, phones. Then the other thing that we were exploring is how do we make these communities visible in digital space? And of course, the example I showed you earlier, the cartographic visibility is something that's been done pretty often. It's a very common example where uh, citizens in a slum or a squatter settlement that's kind of a blank on Google Maps then goes on and tags them on Google Maps and creates these spaces and makes themselves visible on Google Maps. But we said, uh, we thought, well, Google Maps is also a global IT software and you're giving your data to Google Maps when you are, uh, when you're making yourself and tagging yourself on these softwares. So we thought, how do we write the city and make ourselves visible on platforms like Wikipedia? Because Wikipedia is an open source software. It's a kind of, it's got a much more progressive, uh, transparent ethos. It's also crowdsourced um, and, and written by people like us. Uh, and, and so we thought, let's, let's try and develop the capacity of these young girls in uh, the informal settlements or the slum resettlement colonies in making themselves visible, not just making themselves visible, but also writing about themselves in, uh, in an embodied and affective way on the digital space in which they become visible, not just as a map pin, but also people with voice, with articulation. Uh, and so this was the area that in Delhi and the peripheries of Delhi that we were working in, Madanpur Khadar, and we began, we had this one full, one full day in which we said we're going to co-write this Wikipedia page about Madanpur Khadar because there is absolutely no information online about this place, which has been created because of years of Delhi's slum eviction programs in which these uh, slum residents have been kind of pushed out, thrown outside the city and they have settled, uh, they've been settled in Madanpur Khadar. And the moment we started writing, we, we said, we're going to do a Wiki, Wikipedia editathon. The moment we started the editathon, we realized it was impossible to do it with these girls, because first of all, we had the same problem of the, of the software, the smartphones. Um, but even when the, the phone capacity was enough, there, there was no digital connectivity. So they couldn't get online onto the Wikipedia platform in order to write together. Uh, and then when we started writing it, then we realized and actually the, the articulation that is possible is actually much better in their own language in Hindi rather than in English. So we landed up writing two different pages, one in Hindi, one in English. I'm showing you the English one here on the right, but actually we wrote the whole thing in Hindi and then we translated it um, in English and put it online. So why was this important and why is this a kind of smart city from below? It's, it, it, we felt it, it was challenging some of the accepted norms of the smart city from above where Google becomes the only possible way that we understand the city, the Google car, the Google drone image from above, uh, the satellite images. Uh, this is a city that is narrated and written by the people who live there from their own perspectives. It's an oral history of their settlement, resettlement outside the city. It's an embodied and affective 
narrative in which they start talking about the little squares, the chalks that they, you know, the samosa chalk and jalebi chalk and all the chalks are named after food places. And all of these information, all of this knowledge, local knowledge get lost in that Google pin. So we thought that was very important to highlight their oral history, their embodiedness, their sense of belonging to this place. So we wrote it, we put it up online, and the next day we see a big notice on the Wikipedia page saying, this page does not have adequate references and it will be taken down. And it's sort of this highlighted to us how difficult it is for people, ordinary people, people without uh, the kind of digital capacity or the digital voice, established digital voices to make their presence and become visible in digital spaces. The reason that Wikipedia put that notice was because this entire Wikipedia page was written without references. And of course it was because it's an oral history. The, these girls were writing about their history because that's the history that they've been told from their parents and their grandparents. They're writing about how they walk through these places. And Wikipedia, even despite its progressive uh, nature, even despite its open source, crowdsourced nature, does not really enhance oral history type writing. Um, it wanted official references to information elsewhere in order to validate this page. So what we did is we then referenced two key uh, books. One was my book on uh, the illegal city, which kind of translate, which kind of looked at the different eviction programs and how, you know, what had happened in, in Delhi's eviction programs since the 2000s. And the other one by Gautam Bhan, which again looks at what happened when they were resettled in the periphery. So we use these two references and the next day the notice was taken off wikipedia and it sort of highlighted to us that how in very implicit and explicit ways even platforms like wikipedia which claim to be digitally inclusive um, actually marginalize people who do not have the kind of textual referencing uh, in order to uh, make themselves visible that oral history actually becomes invisibilized silenced uh, totally in digital space. Then I want to uh, come to the last part of this webinar to talk a little bit about uh, some of the specifics of the smart city in a way that it's addressed or focused on safety per se. Um, and there's been a lot of this kind of safety, smart safety technologies that's been sold across the world to different cities across the world. And what it actually does is safety um, in a way that is kind of sold and bought by urban authorities is that safety is enhanced or safety is vested in the assumption that more surveillance is more safety. Uh, so the more number of CCTV cameras you have, the more command and control centers and police presence you have, the more you can have GPS track and trace and, and uh, drones and police presence, that's going to keep people safe. But in all of our conversations, the communities, what we actually saw is that it ignores the kind of temporality and the sociocultural nature of violence, gender-based violence particularly, because what is gender-based violence but not the surveillance of women's bodies and spaces? And, and violence actually persists and, and, and builds upon uh, family surveillance, community surveillance, um, and, and then if you add uh, CCTV cameras and police surveillance, it kind of perpetuates that surveillance over women's bodies and marginal bodies, uh, you know, lower caste bodies, uh, minority ethnic bodies, uh, you know, working class bodies and so on and so forth. So what would a smart safe city 
from below look like? And we don't really essentially have all the answers, but I'm going to try and uh, you know, talk through some of the ways that we thought we could intervene. So what we did is that these women, they obviously didn't have safe spaces. You know, family sometimes can be the most unsafe space. So that's, that could be the site and the origin or, or the roots of gender-based violence. So we thought in the absence of these physically safe spaces, let's create an online safe space. So we created a WhatsApp group, um, a closed WhatsApp group of uh, some of these women with whom we were talking and were constantly chatting. So this online safe space actually became really exciting, enriching experience for all of us because we were sharing our diaries every day of um, how we go through the city, how we access education, um, you know, the, the struggles and the difficulties that some of these women were facing while going in and out of the city, um, employment, uh, job prospects, and so on and so forth. And on the left, you see some of these <coughs> images that were uploaded to that WhatsApp uh, group. Um, and, and they were kind of temporal because especially during the monsoons, we got all these images of how they were stuck in the daily rains and how they couldn't get to work and somebody lost their job and you know how they couldn't go to uh, the college that they were going for vocational training. And so it kind of is, it was temporarily sporadic, but it, it kept on and it kept on moving with the issues that they were facing. Um, and this WhatsApp safe space actually gave them much more confidence to begin to speak out, to try and begin to articulate what the problem was. Um, and then also begin like really strong critiques of the infrastructure of the city, that the city doesn't provide us with basic transport infrastructure. The city doesn't have stormwater drainage that, you know, the roads get flooded the moment the, you know, there's, there's rains. Um, and so we begin to, began to start seeing how the women in a group together in, in a kind of closed space where nobody else was intervening or surveilling what they were saying and doing were actually uh, conversing with each other and creating um, a, a kind of a cri critical, uh, critical conversation about infrastructure and housing and education for marginal communities in the city. Then we did also some time mapping, and this was because of the safety apps, because the safety apps that are being pushed now as a kind of part of that surveillance that, you know, if you download the safety app on your smartphones, uh, you can actually, your family can track and trace you, they can see where you're going, so that actually is safe, or you can call people, you can also pin places and say this was unsafe, something happened at this point. And actually, some of the things, what they were saying is, uh, you know, safety is not an event it's not a one-off thing it's it's uh, you know it's cultural social, I don't know. can social... you try and wrap it up in two or three minutes now yeah Thank sure you. um it's uh that it's also uh it, it, it safety is also temporal so we uh we did this time mapping with the women and in this time mapping there were uh we asked them to draw their the plan of their community and map it with the presence of men and women during the day and during the night. And it come, come, came up with very, very different kind of spatial temporalities of, of safety and unsafety. So you have the park in which you have the men during the daytime and during the nighttime. Uh, so the dark spots are night and the, and the light ones are day. Um, and there's some places where there's both men and women, but at, it, you see here, you begin to see that some spaces which are completely safe at night, uh, sorry, completely safe during the daytime are actually very unsafe for women at night because there's, there's groups of young men hanging around. And from there, we, we created this, um, this table of, you know, what does violence mean? The kind of time frame of violence, the patterns of violence, and what's the difference between looking at violence from the safety apps vis-a-vis -vis looking at it from the actually existing life in the margins. I don't have the time to go into this, but I'll just pick up 
one of them, like measurement, you know, how is violence measured in the safety apps, in the smart technologies, violence is a clock time. It's, you know, when it happened, where it happened, it's a pin. But for women, it's social and gender time. It's, you know, when they meet the family, which family member, you know, when they go out into the community, which neighbor. Um, and it's, it's a kind of a very gendered time. It's, it's like, uh, and it's not clock time. It's really not about, you know, what exactly at what time it happened. It's more about the, the relationship and, and connectivities with other spaces, other people um, and other communities and so on and so forth. Um, I won't go too much into this, but I can talk about this if there are any questions. And then finally, I want to, um, okay, so we created a zine actually with, with this clock time event uh, thing uh, and, and the time mapping that they did. Um, and the zine and various other uh, curated material that came out of our WhatsApp group, we created a public exhibition. So one of the things that we thought uh, in a way that the smart, that we can uh, challenge some of the universality and uh, gender blindness actually of the smart city from above was through raising more public awareness of what it does, what are the gender-based and social cultural impacts of this uh, universalized smart city from above. So this became a public exhibition in one of Delhi's very uh, important metro stations and it stayed there for a, for a, for a month and uh, we did a lot of campaigning and uh, raising of awareness. But also the WhatsApp group then led to, uh, we found that actually uh, they, were, they were writing poetry. They were, they were talking about uh, things like Hawa, Pani, and you know, all of these uh, kind of real basic necessities in poetry. So that took us to thinking about a rap song um, because they were, they were kind of almost uh, saying this poetry out and slamming it. And, and we said, well, would you like to say a rap song and say, you know, have your voice. Uh, talk back to the city, uh, talk back to these policymakers who don't think about women, particularly women of the working classes, when they are buying these smart technologies from these global IT corporations. Um, and so that became a rap song and we took that rap song, we recorded it with them and also then we created a video because they were very keen to be on YouTube. So we created this video with them and um, I don't know if any of you have already seen it, it's on YouTube and it, it got huge amount of popularity. And I just wanted to say before I play this and that'll be my end. Um, so it got so much popularity that it was reported in the National Geographic, it was reported in all the national newspapers and actually the Delhi Master Plan 2041, which is 2041, which is being currently debated right now included some of these women, they, the NGOs included some of these women to come and discuss to create a gender sensitive master plan for the future. So it had huge impact. Uh, and so before I play the song, I just want to finally say that um, to, in order to intervene in the smart city from below, it doesn't, you can use frugal and very low cost technologies. And believe me, this was very frugal and very low cost. But also in order to intervene, it's not necessarily to intervene with technology. Sometimes even arts and humanities based approaches in, in, in giving a very powerful visual and, and audible message also makes a huge difference in, in calling attention to very pressing problems in um, very poor neighborhoods. So I'll play this and I'll stop.
पुलिस ने जाबुद्दीन आर के पुरम ऐसी उजाड़ के खातर में बसाया इस बीच काफी ठोकरे खाई पर हमने भी हिम्मत दिखाई नदी तो दूर नाली भी नहीं पहाड़ तो दूर पुड़ के ढेर मिलेंगे रास्ते में हो लाइट ना हो कोई फाइट स्मार्ट शहर बस बहाना है जनता को नीतियों के खेल में फसाना है सड़कों के अंधेरों में उभरते कदम में उठाती हूँ कभी गार्ड कभी टैक्सी ड्राइवर बन के कदम ऐसी कदम मिलाती हूँ मेरी हिम्मत है बेमिसाल मेरे साथ कहो एक बार ये शहर हमारा आपका नहीं किसी के बाप का शहर हमारा आपका नहीं किसी के बाप का शहर में लड़कियों की लाइफ काफी टफ है अकेले रहना भी अलग ही बसड़ है यहाँ लड़कियों की कीमतों पे बोली लगती है क्या हम इतनी बोली लगती है एक और से सुन लो हम डरने वालों में ऐसी नहीं छेड़छाड़ केस होते हैं क्या गलती है मेरी दिल्ली में रोज छह से ज्यादा रेप होते हैं क्यों समाज ने मुझको दबाया है बिना खुद को सुधारे मुझे घर में बिठाया है निर्भया फूलन देवी बिल के या वो नन्नी सी लड़की याद रहेगी उन सब की कहानी नए दिन गए तारीख हो गए wide-ranging presentation. Let me go to the floor quickly um, so that people can, uh, you know, have a conversation with you. Yeah. Maheen Iftikhar, you want to do something? Maheen, are you there? Maheen Iftikhar? Sir, Maheen has left. She's left. Okay, okay. Yeah, she waited a long time. Okay, Ji. Am I uh, still sharing my yeah. screen? I'm not sure how to share my screen. Um, you, yeah, it's okay. Um, uh, we'll we'll finish it. Don't worry. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. What about uh, um, Elias Malik Sab? My question is that, um, as I understand, the smart city will be only successful if we get the correct data about the city. If everybody has an access to the 
real, genuine, and correct data about everything of the office or her city. But the problem in our countries, I mean, Asian countries or subcontinent countries, is that normally we manipulate the data, and we the data which we public is not the genuine one. Even uh, just with the uh, on the basis of political motives, and near the election, the everything is manipulated. So the fake data will not give genuine information to the citizens. It will be the system will be all useless if it's all uh, in genuine data. Fair point. So Fair point. Who is that case? Yeah. Abdullah Khan Sab. I wanna keep noting down the questions. I'll come to you later. Sure. Yes. Yes. Uh, so thank you, sir. Thank you. Please introduce so, yourself uh, to you Yard. Can you introduce uh, yourself? Please, uh, from the perspective of economics, I'm a student of Pied Development Studies. So from economic, uh, I'm. I'm Abdullah Khan from Pied Development Studies and student sir. And I want to ask a question uh, from possible of smart cities in countries like Pakistan or India. So like it's not feasible for, for us. It's only for the Western countries or developed countries or it's also possible for us. Okay, fair enough. Let's go to Altafur Rahman Niaz. Altafur Niaz sir. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Altafur Rahman, sir. I am from National College of Business Administration and Economics, Lahore. Uh, my question uh, may be treated as a follow-up of Khan Sahib's uh, uh, question that uh, I, I wanted to ask uh, uh, Professor Ditta that uh, since she has conducted this uh, research there and she has been there in India and we have you know the same environment, would you suggest us uh, to uh, that for Pakistan they should we should uh, indulge into having a smart city, maybe just one? And if yes, then should should it be started from a smaller town or from a large town? Uh, you know, understanding the uh, problems that uh, both uh, gentlemen before me pointed out. Okay, uh, anybody else? Okay, otherwise I'll go back to Iona. Iona, very briefly, let me also ask you, I mean, given the way data is turning out, we are actually almost in a data war situation right now. Trump has started the data war and even Pakistan, et cetera, joining. We are actually beginning to think about what data means. We are beginning to pass laws on data usage. Sovereignty and data are in a clash. Facebook and Google control the space. And I think this is turning out. Um, and um, quite rightly, George Orwell pointed out that you know, 1984 is here now. Uh, smart city is really big brother in control. And you laid a lot of emphasis on forecasting and on capturing behavior, but then that means we're going back to central planning and, and, uh, and re resurrecting the Soviet Union. So yes, I know a lot of um, left-leaning people think that perhaps they'll have a nirvana, but as we discovered in the Soviet Union, there was no nirvana. In fact, data might be creating a problem for us over the long term. Um, and as you mentioned, access, for example, yeah, but data access is always going to be very, very, my access to data is not the same as Google, even though I'm perfectly well-equipped, educated, I have 
access to, but of course I can never compete with Google. And the same thing for many other people, even our companies here can't compete with Google. So there's now a new wave arising saying, hey guys, give us uh, protection so that we can compete with Google. So I don't see the smart city as something that's going to help us. It's in fact going to create a lot of chaos. Secondly, also I'd like to point out, I come back to my original question, unsmart people. I mean, you can do all the smart apps, you can do everything, but unfortunately the data that's been collected on us is now being used more against us than for us. I mean, all the safety data, et cetera, is coming back to haunt us. I mean, they're tracking everything and they're out to curb our freedoms. So this thing about um, somehow data is going to be a great equalizer for our disadvantaged groups. I, I think disadvantaged groups have not been disadvantaged because of data. It's as anthropologists, I mean, call it, it's just power. Who has the power? And the disadvantaged groups, the groups never have power, whether data or not data, they will never have power because mm -hmm. somehow human society can never, never organize itself. I mean, political science has not developed anything on how to organize itself. So how would you sum up these questions? <laughs> Do you have another hour? <laughs> no, please don't. No, <laughs> 10 minutes. no these, 10 are, minutes. these are great questions. Actually, um, what you said is exactly what I was saying. Uh, I think I wasn't pretty, I wasn't clear when I said we, we don't want the surveillance city. We, we really don't want this ubiquitous data gathering at all. Yeah, but we don't have, we don't have an option, I think. No, I mean, Google, but, uh, Google is collecting my data, whether I like it or not. Yeah, if yeah I, exactly. If so this, webinar, is, this is why after we... the webinar, Google will show me all the smart city books. I can't sure. do anything about so it. So let, let me start with the basics. I think the smart city is the one which we currently live in right now. Uh, we don't we don't need technology to make us smart. I think at, at a basic level that I would I would say, because the, the city where, that we live in right now has many flaws. And even believe me, in London sitting there, it has many flaws. But there, there is a kind of grassroots innovation and frugality, the use of kind of frugal uh, networks and, and grassroots ways of working with whatever little is available and innovating on that. And that is to me what is smart. So it's not really necessary to have uh, kind of ubiquitous uh, surveillance technologies in the Soviet style. I mean, that's just the opposite of what I would uh, suggest. Uh, but my, my point was really to, uh, think about a way in which exactly that problem that we have with Google or Amazon or these very big giants that are collecting data about us uh, to make it very, um, very open-ended, to make them transparent. And how do we do that is, is possibly to do that through uh, making citizens much more capable, digitally capable, digitally literate. Um, so uh, that was part of our program in terms of trying to get to work with communities, to get them the digital literacy, to even understand the kind of ways that they're being kept out of these uh, programs. So, um, you know, and, and this is referring to the other question also, you know, what kind of smart cities should we have in Pakistan or in India? Uh, like I said, I mean, the smart city is the one that we live in right now. And, and smartness to me is not about increasing technology. Smartness is about uh, knowing how to do more with less. And, and this has been said to me many, many times by uh, some of the people that we work in in these low-income communities that, you know, somebody said, I'm already smart. I was smart before the smartphone came because I had only this much money in my pocket and I was educating all my children with that money. Uh, so I think it's, it also comes down then to how we define the smart city. 
And of course, every city does need technology. It's not like it's not a Luddite system where we say we don't want technology. But how do we use technology? First of all, uh, by not spending so much on it that we actually can't give the basics to other parts of the city where people don't even have safe drinking water or public toilets. So it's also about optimizing the use of technology, but also the investment in technology. I mean, do we need another smartphone? Do we need another safety app? Do we need another CCTV camera? I mean, how about actually changing people's attitudes? Um, you know, so technology is, is, is not a silver bullet. I think that's, that's really what I'm trying to say, but it's also, it can be empowering. It can be progressive. If we know that there are people being left behind and, and we find ways to bring them into the system, not by telling them to you know, follow the line, but by finding other ways in which they can collaborate with us, they can generate data about themselves that can challenge some of these top-down data that Google is collecting, that can actually say, go to the city and say, look, you know, what you have about us from your census data or from your uh, CCTV camera surveillance is not the correct picture of our community. So that was really my uh, my point. Um, and then, of course, you know, making these kinds of arts and humanities based outputs. The city knows what it has to do. The city knows it has to give safe drinking water. It knows it has to provide public toilets. Um, it, it's not something new that we're saying, but it's the problem is of um, you know paying attention to these these issues. Um, and you know, making a rap song actually brought so much attention to it that then then they had to do something. So sometimes it's also about drawing attention to issues that have been left behind, and technology can be a way of doing it. So um, I think I'm I'm asking for more of a um, a diversity of the use of technology rather than a ubiquity of technology. It's, it's the fragmented ways, the diverse ways that it can be used, and it can be used in a way to empower. So it's more the kind of I'm talking more about developmental ways to think about it than anything else uh, rather than a technological solution to very deep-seated social cultural problems which all uh, all our south asian cities have okay great thank you ayana thank you very much i think uh, this has been a very good webinar we've uh, learned a lot about smart cities about gender about um, bottom-up um, digital um, you know, activism. So that's wonderful. But uh, I still, I remain very skeptical because I find that in our countries, the corridors of power are very opaque and very distant. They sit somewhere on Mars. They don't even sit here. <laughs> to them, YouTube videos or, or these things hardly matter. We have social songs. We have so many other things mm -hmm. that are there. But unfortunately, nobody... Um, really listens to them and even if they do the memory lasts for a day and uh, power everywhere donald trump has shown i mean just uh, re relies on using digital technology for their own end and, and that, that sure. is one of the i think that is one of the problems i mean we can we can digitize and technologize to death but you know the political climate is not is not appreciative of it it's very very hard but you know i mean i mean I'm re i remain optimistic uh, i don't know if you remember the the free internet that facebook was trying to pedal to india and there was a huge pushback and they actually left that idea so i think it is it is about the grassroots if the grassroots come together they can make huge changes and and of course they're not always 
of is possible because of course the state holds so much power and it it is it has often used technology actually to suppress dissident voices um, so it is a very big challenge and struggle but it is i mean there are good examples of things actually happening fair enough i know the problem with grassroots coming together it was well enunciated by Mangur Olson somewhere in 1970 or 80 when he wrote a book called The Logic of Collective Action. And the whole point was that, yes, human societies can improve if the vast majority of people can come together. But uh, sadly, uh, 100,000 years or whatever of history shows that we can't come together. We can come together momentarily. We can have a French Revolution or something, but that momentary moment passes away, and very soon we surrender power to the to those who are interested in power. This is the problem that Plato also posed in Republic. There are power-hungry people; they rule the world, and this is genetics. I don't think I can say anything about it. But anyway, this is a long discussion. Thank you very much, folks. It's been wonderful. Thank you very much. We'll see you again for the next webinar. Iona, I thank you. I thank everybody thank for joining us. All thank the best. You for inviting uh, me. Thanks. Nice meeting all.